Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The 2014 LitFest author reading series featured nationally known and award-winning authors, as well as Lighthouse's own William Haywood Henderson. In this second reading of the series, visiting authors Antonia Nelson, Matt Johnson, and Emily Rapp read published and unpublished pieces, providing a sneak peek into upcoming work by these writers. I am Andrea Dupree, and I am here to welcome you to the ninth annual Lit Fest. Thank you. And if that's all I have to do, then I've succeeded, right? I am here to introduce three fantastic writers. I know it's the penultimate night of Lit Fest, and that's bittersweet. Is it bittersweet? I mean, A... We're going to get to sleep soon. But B, we're not going to be here under the tent and congregating and maybe drinking a little too much wine. Um, Other people, not me. Others. I've heard. Um, Anyway, we want to thank you all for being here, and we really want to thank our guest authors who are here tonight. We've got Emily Rapp. We've got Matt Johnson. And we have Antonia Nelson. Fabulous writers. It's a little bit of a coup, and I've been already working on trying to get them to come back. So um, that's that's amazing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read intros for all three. We've already agreed amongst the four of us on an order, and we decided to make a Matt Johnson sandwich, <laughs> where it's it's Emily Rapp, Matt Johnson, and then Antonia Nelson. So I'm going to read all three of the bios, and then we're going to proceed in in some sort of ordered fashion. So I'm going to start with with Emily Rapp, a former Fulbright scholar and graduate of Harvard Divinity School. Emily Rapp is the author of Poster Child, a memoir, and the recently published memoir, The Still Point of the Turning World. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Salon and Slate, among other publications. She's the recipient of a Rona Jaffe Writers Award, a James A. Mishner Fellowship at the University of Texas, Austin, and the Philip Roth Residence in Creative Writing at Bucknell University. She's a faculty member at the University of California Riverside MFA program. Still, right? That is an out of date. And also is just to the south of us in Santa Fe. So I feel like she should kind of be an honorary, she needs to come here regularly kind of thing. And then after her, Matt Johnson was born and raised in Philadelphia, but has spent much of his life elsewhere, i.e. drifter. Um, (laughs) He's the author of several novels and graphic novels, including Pym, Drop, Hunting in Harlem, and Incognito. Johnson is a faculty member at the University of Houston Creative Writing Program. We've already conspired with him to get him back here in March, and now it's official. It's on podcast, so he has to come back. Um, He's second. And then Antonia Nelson is the author of 10 books of fiction, not that we're counting, including the collections Female Trouble and Nothing Right and the novels Talking in Bed, Nobody's Girl, and Bound. Her work has appeared in some places you might have heard of, 
like the New Yorker, Harper's, Esquire, Red Book, as well as Best American in O. Henry. She's received a Guggenheim Fellowship, if you're into those kind of things, and an NEA grant and the Ray Award for the short story. She lives in New Mexico, Colorado, and Texas, where she holds the Cullen Chair in Creative Writing at the University of Houston. We're so thrilled to have all three of you here. We're going to start with Emily Rapp, so give her a big hand. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a good week. Thank you, Workshop. I'm going to read this on my phone. Yep, that's right, because I'm modern like that, (laughs) meaning I couldn't get the printer to work. That's that's actually what it really means, so I have my glasses on. So I'm actually not going to read from my book, but I'm going to read from a series of essays I wrote after my son died, which are sort of about angry death essays, basically. They're angry essays, so get ready. Anyway, this one's called Los Angelitos, and it begins with a poem by Samuel Beckett. All the dead voices... They make a noise like wings, like leaves, like sand, like leaves. Silence. They all speak at once, each one to itself. Silence. Rather they whisper, they rustle, they murmur, they rustle. Silence. What do they say? They talk about their lives. To have lived is not enough for them. They have to talk about it. To be dead is not enough for them. It is not sufficient. At the museum in the birthplace of the artist Diego Rivera in the city of Guanajuato, Mexico, there is a gallery of portraits called Los Angelitos. The museum itself is like a stop-time photograph from a different age. Various rooms of the house are staged, although some are off-limits, and visitors move through the available spaces as if moving through an imagined day in the life of a family whose furniture remains intact, though its members are long dead. The bedroom with thick wooden furniture and canopied crib for a tiny Diego, surrounded by a braided cloth rope to ward off those who might be tempted to touch. The impressive entrance hall is lined with art and gold frames, once-used dishes now stacked behind spotless glass. The only sounds are the shuffling of curious feet and muted voices in English, Spanish, and German. On the top floor of the house, in the upper rooms full of light, are the little angels, two white-walled galleries of carefully curated photographs of babies being held by parents, siblings, sole mothers and single fathers, all dressed in fancy clothes that are neatly pressed and obviously seldom worn. In some of these portraits, older children with dark wings of hair over their eyes lean on one elbow over the baby, who is usually on a table or in the arms of a solemn-looking parent. Solemnity was usual in the 19th century photograph, so this does not surprise me. I look at the dark-haired families. I stare into the faces of the children, the parents, the babies. Because my son Ronan was blind for a year before he died, when he too was still a baby, it takes me a full 20 minutes of looking at the photographs to realize that the babies are dead, and not just afflicted by the unique vulnerability of being a baby and having no choice but to rely on the goodness of others, of the world. I am used to the sight of the sightless after so many long hours singing into the face of a baby who would never see me fully, never know me apart from the animal instinct he was born with that told him that I was his mother. I assumed these were baptismal photos. My fiancé has been walking silently behind me, and only when I turn around and see his beloved face do I realize my mistake. Are they dead? I ask him, as if they have just died and I am asking for confirmation. He nods. His eyes are dark and glittering. He can see me. 
I thought they were being baptized. The babies in the portraits mounted on the walls where Diego Rivera was born are wearing burial gowns that are frilly and white and, and as elaborate and delicate as baptismal gowns. Looking more closely, I can see that the way the living person interacts with the camera is different from the stillness of the babies. In death, even their bodies are mute, although it is those silent bodies that tell the whole story of every other person in the photograph. I feel dizzy with the weird meaning of time in this lit upper room. Everyone in these photographs is dead, but in this isolated, unrepeatable, documented, mummified moment, only the babies have marched forward out of measured time. Their blank eyes offer only reflection of where they have gone, which is a place from which there is no return, of course, no going back, an unknown we are all headed for and about which there are no believable reports. Why can't these babies tell us what we need to know? The room is suddenly loud with Ronan's voice, the way it faded and quickened in the minutes before he died and then stopped. The way it was always a collection of sounds that never shaped into words because there was a neuron path that had been burned to the ground of his brain and smoldering and useless became part of a decimated forest it would take a figure from a fairy tale to heal or resurrect. A forest of personality and personhood that nobody, not even he, the inhabitor of it, would ever visit or know or recognize. I feel a surge through my body of something that is not grief or anger, but a necessary numbness that acts as a net through which I view the rest of the gallery. I am light-bodied and cold. I do not want to run out. I want to see these babies, each baby, the way I did not want to see my son's face in the hours after he died, but did so anyway, lifting the embroidered shroud again and again, not wanting to see, wanting to see. His eyes would not stay closed, although his body was heavy, so I closed them again and again trailing the edges of my nails through his long eyelashes. I was not weeping then, but choking and dreaming with disbelief, relief, release, alienation, and attention. This is woe, I thought then, a brief single syllable that seemed to sum up the simple crushing fact that he was gone. I would be left to tell his story and not the other way around, a fairy tale grinding backward, a gruesome reverse. I descend from the top staircase of the museum through the rooms of modern art and sculpture and out into the street where it has been raining for hours, slowly and lightly. Our clothes smell like the strong detergent used at the lavanderia where we have had them washed by a young mother whose three-month-old baby coos and kicks in the cot next to a long line of washing machines. He was fussy when we went to collect our clothes. I put my finger on his forehead and he looked at me with his dark seeing eyes and then fussed a bit less. Look how well you can calm him, my fiancé observed kindly. This compliment flattened me. For what good is a mother whose child has died? The week before we arrived in Mexico, I discovered in a dresser drawer I was cleaning out after a year of stuffing into it receipts, underwear, and stray gym socks, a single red mitten that was Ronan's, and the shirt that I cut from his body after he died, printed with rockets and planets arranged in a whimsical pattern, a little boy's dream of space of the beyond. I had been moving both items around in various drawers for months, always wondering what happened to the pants that went with the shirt. Where were the matching space pants? But I never bothered to actually look for them. Ronan's not an angel, I say all the time to anyone who will listen. God doesn't have him. Who does? It is Christmas in Mexico and all around this city with its winding cobbled streets and ringing bells. We have watched people marching purposely to cathedrals, holding their baby Jesus figures, decked out in festive costume and plucked from the home crush to be blessed by the priest. It is men who do this ritual shuttling of the doll, their precious inanimate bundles wrapped in brightly colored blank blankets, printed with the image of wide-eyed animated bears and Hello Kitty. 
Dry leaves crossed the zocalo, the plazas, the polished holiday shoes of the living children headed to mass or headed home. Angels. Perhaps they exist in some other world, but it is not enough. Rebecca Solnit in her book, The Far Away Nearby, quotes Mary Shelley, author of Frankenstein, writing in her journal in March, 1815, about the death of a child. Dreamt that my little baby came to life again, that it had only been cold and we rubbed it before the fire and it lived. Awoke and found no baby. I think about the little thing all day. The parents of the dead babies in the photographs in the Diego Rivera Museum hold them as if they are alive, as if they are looking for a fire before which to rub them awake, their faces drawn with resignation and an unspoken ambition to solve the unsolvable. Sometimes I hold the plaster cast, a friend made of Ronan's hand, pretend it is warm and real. I trace the creases in the palms and examine the white material of his fingernails for imagined dirt. My love and I hold hands in the street and kiss on the corners like other couples. In the bakeries, we select hot loaves of bread and glistening pastries with silver tongs and arrange them on a tray. Guanajuato is known as the haunted city because of its museum of mummies. We do not visit the mummies, a deliberate and necessary avoidance. We've heard some of them are actually not so old, which is somehow more horrible, and that their families don't have money to bury them. A newer mummy is scarier than one that has long been dead. At night, when the otherwise nonstop dance party on the roof next door to our rented house takes a brief hiatus and we are able to sleep, I have dreams in which Ronan is helpless in some foreign land. Someone is putting him on a plane, but they don't know how to care for him, how to support his head, how to feed him, and he will die on the plane. People want to hurt him for some reason, but I don't understand why, and this makes me murderous. People are trying to blind him, although he is already blind. They want to hurt him, cross every boundary of cruelty, and in my dreams I try to kill them, and sometimes I do, with my hands, bombs, knives, rockets, words, anything that can be fashioned or shaped into a weapon. I wake up frightened by my rage, by a feeling of impotence that is the loss of love. I thrash around, slobber and pant, and cannot be coaxed back to sleep. I listen to the music next door. I think suddenly I should get up and dance, but I lie still and think of the portraits of dead babies, Los Angelitos. The sounds of the techno music and shouts of the living mixed with the imagined voices of the unnamed dead babies who leap from their portraits and form a circle on the floor of the well-lit upper gallery in the home of the dead artist, in a country where skeletons walk with the living and artwork and lie half buried in the ground. And inside this circle sits my son, telling a story of what we need to know, although nobody can stay awake or asleep long enough to hear what he's saying. Only the babies cheer him on with their language of coos and kicks and hiccups. Beholden to no one, they say only what they want to hear. Ronan keeps turning the pages of a book that nobody else can read, his own story, the story of ordinary babies and ordinary time, and the people who are left behind to mourn both. Thank you. I don't know how you fit up here with this. Not that you are particularly big. Or, yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> I promise awkwardness tonight, and there we go.
too. Yeah, we're going to expand, and eventually Tony's going to go to paper. It's a whole process. <laughs> uh, okay, this, this book comes out next March. Uh, I think it's going to be called Swirl. Um, but um, I, I'm still working out how to read from it, so you're screwed. And so I'm... <laughs> It's about uh, this guy uh, finds out he has a daughter he didn't know he had, and just kind of like a 70s TV plot. But um, anyway, he finds out he had his daughter he didn't know he had, and she didn't know that her father was black. He tries to compensate for this by enrolling her in this school, especially for mixed people. But he's still trying to um, impress her grandfather who raised her and the way he's doing it is he's going to bring um, uh, bring her back for a Seder um, and they're going to for sh- or Shabbat and they're going to um, uh, basically he's going to try and impress them he had a one night stand with her mother when she was 16 didn't see her again all that and also this story starts when the principal of the school he enrolled her in shows up at the house unexpected he lives in the ghetto he thinks it's a crackhead so he electrocutes her with a taser <laughs> good I'm glad you're laughing that's a good sign alright yeah no one's seen this yet alright so picks up right then he's tased her she's in the back of his bug they're trying to make it um, to the dinner before sunset <laughs> For Talmudic reasons, right. Uh, okay. We were driving to the emergency room. It's 27 minutes before sunset. We can drop her off at the hospital in 11 minutes, then go on Wissahickon to the Roosevelt Turnpike, make it downtown to I-76 in 16 minutes, and still not break Talmudic law. It can happen. We can make it happen. We're not going to make it. Let me call Irv now. Tal tells me to put in the passenger seat. She's not looking at me. She's looking at Rosalind, who's laid out in the back of the car on the sofa seat in fetal position. She was in utero a long time ago, but she forms a position like she was just born. We're going to Irv's Shabbat. That's not an option. You can't miss. You have to talk to him, clear things up. She's okay. You're okay, right? Shabbat Shalom, I hear behind me. <laughs> Through the rearview mirror, Rosalind looks directly at me this time. Dear God, she's speaking in tongues. <laughs> no, Pops. Miss Rosalind, I'm sorry. I know we're in the middle of a little crisis here, but do you already have plans for dinner? I don't hear the response. I look through the mirror again and see Rosalind's eyes are closed. Her lips are moving, and I can just make out a slurred chant of Nam Yehorengeku. So I know she hasn't passed out yet completely. She's fine, I tell Tao, who won't even look at me. As we sit at a red light, I reflect on the fact that I'm pretty sure I'm getting sued at the end of this. <laughs> I'm pretty sure all this, this tasing, this drive, it's all going to be used in a deposition of some kind. My lawyer will confirm this, I'm sure. I can already see Rosalind on the stand, the blessed Earth Mother herself. And the whole of her Melodotopia gang in the gallery staring at me, when the light goes green, I ask Rosalind if she wants to go to the hospital. Like every cell, yodeling, she says. <laughs> and then it goes quiet, like really quiet, until the car behind me honks for me to move. I pull up at the entrance. 
jump out of the car, open up the back door. There's a wheelchair on the curb with Germantown sprayed on the back of it like a scarlet letter. I pull over. The wheel's worse than a shopping cart. I see Tao getting out to, what are you doing? We don't have time to take her in, I tell my daughter. We're not going to just leave her here. She's a grown woman, I explain. But in the back of the car splayed out, Rosalind's more of a grown woman, at least in how she responds when I start pulling on her leg. Western medicine. <laughs> Rosalind manages. It takes a minute. She says all this without opening her eyes, channeling it from whatever dark pits to which her consciousness has been repelled. You've taken quite a shock, I tell her. I try to make my voice sound as soothing as possible while still yelling it at her. <laughs> it's probably for the best that you get it looked at. No, Rosalind says again, and at least that's what I think I hear. I, it's hard to make sense of it with the ambulance pulling in behind us with the lights on and honking. When the driver gets out of the cab, there's some yelling too, but then Rosalind, eyes closed, has apparently drifted off again. I put my hand back on her leg and start to pull on it, and she kicks me. Mr. Rector, we have a previous invitation to a Shabbat at my grandfather's, would you like to come with us? Tell asked, shoving herself next to me. Rosalind keeps going, and we take that as a yes and throw the wheelchair in the trunk and peel the hell out of there. <laughs> Irv's looking at us all weird because here I am at his doorstep with his granddaughter after being absent from a life for 17 years and also this other woman with me who's his age in a sweatsuit and a wheelchair who I'm holding up by her shoulder to keep her from falling over. Irv, this is Rosalind Kornbluth. That's how it begins. She motions to Irv then motions to Rosalind who flutters her eyes in recognition. Rosalind runs my school. And Warren just almost killed her with one of those electrocution guns, so we thought it might be nice if she joined us for dinner. She's black and Jewish, so consider her a peace offering. <laughs> Must look a mess, Rosalind whispers, but not really to anyone, almost like she's t talking to the strands of her curls. Nonsense. Such a beautiful woman needs no embellishment. Irv smiles and bends over to her, and I get a whiff of his cologne, which is whiskey. <laughs> Jovially, he picks up Rosalind's hand. First, I think he's going to check her pulse, but he kisses it. She's had a long day, I tell him. <laughs> Irv just smiles and says, I'm sure she has. I'm sure she has. And that's when I get that he thinks she's always in this wheelchair. This beat up frame thing, not just because I almost electrocuted her. Inside, it's the same apartment. It's the same apartment I made Tal in. I remember as soon as we get in, the rest, the doorman, the lobby, all these pre-war Walnut Street high-rises look identical to me, but this apartment, this is it. The last time I was here, the least successful sperm from Tao's batch was seeping into my underwear. I'm pretty sure the apartment knows that. I'm pretty sure the crown molding is judging me. There will be a sign. I know words forming on refrigerator magnets or something, something more than me breathing heavy. Oh, yeah, ghosts are real. I I can totally see that in this moment, and I start wheezing, being in this place, being caught back here. We go in the kitchen, and apparently there is a toilet handle at the back of my neck, and I can feel it now. I can feel it 
impulse and all the blood rushing from my brain down, congealing in my jawbone, pulling my mouth slack and open. I know what's happening. I am fainting. I look at Tao. I look at her so beautiful and I think, how bad can my sins be? I scream this in my head. How bad can my sins be? But my body isn't listening. I lean on the wheelchair to keep from falling over. I lean on Rosalind's soldier. Rosalind says, ow, with surprising clarity. <laughs> Here, I'll take her. And Irv yanks Rosalind away and is moving down the hall, offering, we'll get you a nice seat at the table before I can stop him. Now, somehow, I didn't imagine Rosalind coming to the table. Somehow, I imagined we would just wheel her into a dark and calming room and drape a sheet over her head till it was time to leave. I start to lose my balance again and Tao takes my hand, holds it firm enough to tell me she knows I'm fading. You can't lose your shit, okay? <laughs> Warren, pops! No, I tell her, I can't. I straighten up. Tao grips my hand harder. No nervous breakdowns until after the Kurdish. <laughs> The rest of the Cart family turns out to be just three people, which is a relief. I can handle three. That's just this, that, and the other. And this and that are an elderly couple who look like they're in their 60s or 70s or white people, 50s. They are introduced <laughs> as Dot and Art. And I know their symbols, symbols even before the pronouncement is given. Twins, Dot says. And there is a graveled truth in this declaration of victory that she's still alive to say it again. And Art winces dramatically. It's clearly an age-old performance, the signature piece of the repertoire, still a clout breezer, even after all these years of being downgraded from the Broadway of youth to old ages community theater. And this, my daughter, Alyssa, Dot tells me, and I look to the side, and there is Cindy Carp, Tao's mom, 20 years older, and back from the grave to haunt me. Same kind of eyes, same kind of hair, exactly the same kind of disapproval I imagined on her face that last phone call I dumped her. I know it's her, just a cousin, a co-share of genetic memory, but I start getting dizzy again, and I'm going down. I'm going down right in front of them on their table, on their Shabbat table. But then Tao tells someone Moses, and I feel her hand squeeze my own again, and I remember to introduce myself. I am Warren Duffy. I had the penis that once poked your angelic little Cindy, which no doubt doomed her. This is my lovely daughter. You know her much better than I, but without her, I would be unconscious at this moment. <laughs> But I, all I say is my name and my great joy at meeting them. And they look down to the side of me, smiles freezing at Rosalind, who has been pushed to a place setting at the table. They look at Rosalind's skull. Her neck has quit its job. The head was lobbed forward, stopped only by her chin on her breastbone. All you can see of her is the curls of her hair, thick, mostly salt, some pepper spirals rolling from her scalp and just stopping short of the table in front of her. This is my friend, Rosalind. She directs the learning center, Tyler's in I tell them when they look back at me, wondering, Rosalind? I ask, leaning in closer to her, smiling enough for both of us. Rosalind! Again, but nothing but a light moan comes back to me. Is she? Art drifts, waiting more for me to complete his sentence. What is he asking? I have no idea. Is she disabled? Is she my mom? Is she sick? Is she dead? Yes, I tell him. Then give a sad look as for their answer, both he and his sister smile knowingly, and suddenly all this is normal. I thought you'd be blacker, Dot tells me. 
Mom, no, you can't say things like that. Please forgive her. The daughter says to me, Alyssa even reaches out her hand in front of me like she can shield me from her mother's lack of tact. No, it's okay. I totally expect to be blacker also. Every time I look in the mirror, it is a shock. Trust me. You know, I didn't mean anything racist by it, Dot tells me. And I look deep within myself, but I still don't know that at all. Still, I'm willing to pretend, so I nod accordingly. It's just, I remember when Cindy said she got a pregnant by a black guy. We were expecting a much darker baby, but Tom came out white. I just thought maybe she was confused. Cindy was a wild one. Oh my God, please kill me, Tao says, with a thump of her forehead, hits the end of the table as she hides her face like an ostrich. She looks like she's doing a Rosalind impression. Mother, cut it out or I'm leaving. Just stop. Just stop now. My daughter thinks I'm racist since I voted for McCain. <laughs> You're not racist, so stop acting like one. This is why I never had kids, Art laughs. It's totally jovial, but it's offered as an actual reason. You're gay. You didn't have kids because it's biologically impossible. It's mumbled into the floor by my daughter. But we all hear it. Tao! Both mother and daughter yell. This family, they yell. Finally, these two, they're united. They look at each other silently, and the look says, the demon is back. Thank you. Um, tough acts to follow <laughs> and um, less technological by the moment if there was anybody else it'd be like reading stones later um, I'm going to read the um, uh, first uh, it's very, really nice to read with both Emily and Matt my good friends and I'm very happy to be here uh, it, it seems like a really great organization, and I thank you all for for um, owning it, having it. Um, lucky, lucky you. It seems like a great place. Uh, I'm going to read the first scene from um, the title story of my new collection. So this is just the first part of a story called Funny Once. This year, on the anniversary of their first date, Phoebe had said to Ben, you know, now I've been with you longer than I wasn't with you. And he had found that wonderful. Not only the fact, the 20 years with, trumping the 19 years without, but Phoebe's having kept track. Prisoners also kept track, Phoebe did not say. <laughs> Her not finding it wonderful was the problem between them. She couldn't be happy. Not happy then, not happy now. She hated Houston, yet she'd also hated Boulder. Before hating Boulder, she'd hated Austin, where they'd met. She'd been raised by critics, pessimists. She was genetically disposed. Ben knew by heart the long, vast list of what she hated, her unhappiness at the top, and then other more minor things, including her parents, those progenitors. Her paranoia, her pessimism, herself and herself's inability to imagine anything but the worst-case scenario. Stop reading, Ben had ordered her exasperated. 
quit going to school, get off the internet, no more paranoid phone calls from your dad. Everything you do just makes it worse. The lectures and research, the sad art and sadder science. Novels, newspapers, textbooks, her father's conspiracy theories, all of it evidence of a dismal downward trend. She was highly credentialed in disillusion. That very morning, Phoebe had found her car in the drive with a flat tire, and Ben, naturally, was gone on some long, salubrious run. Fucking hell, she'd said to the vehicle. Her father had long ago told her that an impenetrable rubber had been invented, but the tire companies were on purpose withholding the product. That's how they get you, was his mantra. Doomed to be late to her first therapy appointment, with the new therapist, Phoebe hadn't been able to trust the tattooed man who had suddenly appeared in the street, this large, menacing stranger in his Cabinet of Wonders panel van, suspiciously well-prepared for a problem such as hers. People are generally good, Ben often instructed her. The man had changed her destroyed tire in a matter of minutes, the lug wrench a blur in his meaty hands, the spare donut tossed about like a toy. From the ruined rubber, he had removed the blade tip of an exacto knife, presenting it to her like a gemstone held between his thick, begrimed fingertips. Ben couldn't talk Phoebe out of believing that the man had been the one to stab it there in the first place. Like the arsonist, who was also the fire chief, she said. <laughs> he had facial tattoos, those kill somebody teardrops I just know he was casing our place I wrote down his license plate number so you can tell the cops when you come home someday and find me all slashed up she abruptly lowered the passenger seat to recline put her feet on the dashboard they were in his car the one she called the penis mobile (laughs) she hated it too and thought Ben was neither young enough nor old enough to be driving it Plus, she hated rush hour, as well as the sudden, sodden spring humidity. She also hated that they were were headed to dinner at his friends, the two Louises, which was a monthly ritual. But most of all, she hated the fact that tonight she did not have her usual sport bottle of gin and tonic in the car console. The therapist had suggested she stop drinking. (laughs) This was all she had told Ben so far about her session. He had immediately volunteered to also quit drinking. Solidarity, he had said, making a fist and offering his knuckles for her to bump. Big of you, she had said, and watched him with satisfaction flush red. They had been very, very high and drunk when he had accidentally lit her hair on fire. (laughs) That had been last weekend. A wake-up call, they named it, afterward, tending the blister on her scalp trimming away the singe. There had been other wake-up calls, a bloody spill on the sidewalk, a trip the wrong way down a one-way street, and then some ensuing forgetfulness, a sort of mutual snooze button. But the burst of heat near her eyes, the alarming pungency of charred hair, the image of her head topped by that wavering flame reflected in the window over the kitchen sink, just before Ben shot her with the spray nozzle. 
May was always a bad month, and this one was no exception. (laughs) First, Ben's old band, The Brutes, had finally, finally gotten their big break, nine years after Ben had quit. As usual, he and Phoebe had shown up for the release party back in January, had driven over to Austin and slept on a futon, sprung for two of the cheap domestic kegs, wandered the loft space, poking gentle fun, Ben feeling sincerely pleased for and modestly superior to his old bandmates, and they vaguely chagrined by the low-budget look of their CD, if not also by the gray in their ponytails, their ragged concert shirts, and the faded state of their fan base. Ben's latest replacement on drums was the hostile 15-year-old son of the lead guitarist. (laughs) Leaving the party, Ben had drunkenly thanked Phoebe for talking him into quitting the group. Now everything had turned around. Instead of being a motley crew of losers who'd refused to move on, the Brutes had become the lucky performers of a high-rotation single with a replete backlog ready-made to reissue. I can hear my influence, Ben insisted every time he heard Wally's gone AWOL, jacking the bass to emphasize his point. And then he couldn't help adding that Wally had been his basset hound way back in high school, the lost dog who'd inspired the song. He missed his band in Austin. He missed the mountains in Colorado. The jagged Houston skyline made of high rises did not compare nor did air conditioning seem refreshing. The flow of traffic did not make him think of rivers, the cynical ways of grackles, the stupidity of pigeons, the skittery paranoia of squirrels, and certain knowledge of rats did not wildlife constitute. (laughs) They'd come here because it was their hometown. They had family here. They'd moved back because Ben's old college roommate, Louise, could get him a job. He had shaved off his beard and put away his hiking boots, making the best of it. Now he wrote grants and received a percentage. You're good at begging, Phoebe told him. I'm a professional idealist, he would claim. Don't do it, she warned as Ben reached for the car radio. That's just what we don't need right now. You're right, you're right, he said, sighing. It was the brute's success that had led to the long night with a pipe to the fire on her head. I freaking named that band. I know, and the dog. Ask me what the therapist asked me. What'd she ask you? He. He asked me if my husband demanded rough sex. What? I know. Right after, what brings you here today? (laughs) And me going, I am terminally unhappy. He asked me about rough sex. A strange opening gambit. Phoebe hadn't mentioned marriage, husband, sex, or violence. She'd thought terminal unhappiness might sound sufficiently suicidal. She had looked down, frowning at her clothing, to see if something about it had led to his strange question. (laughs) Then thought perhaps he had mistaken her for another patient. That scrawny young girl in the waiting room, for example. The one cleaning her teeth with a business card. Maybe because of the scarf, you think? Uh, Like I tie you to the bed with it? Gag you? Mentioning the scarf made her head suddenly itch. She used both hands and scrubbed the whole apparatus angrily. In public, she'd taken to using the stems of her glasses to poke beneath and scratch. 
undone paper clips, plastic forks. The good news was that her her hair appeared to be all growing back, the prickly stubble of uniform coverage, no permanent reminder of what had gone wrong. After they'd extinguished the flame, Ben had marveled at its swift uptake. I have had a few mishaps, he said. Mostly just eyebrows or knuckle hairs. But wow, that was extreme. Product, Phoebe had informed him. I think my mousse is made of napalm. But maybe she was simply more volatile than he. Laid back, people labeled him. He's not my husband, she'd finally replied to the therapist, which wasn't even the beginning of a coherent answer. How do you self-medicate came next. So he did know a thing or two about her after all. She recited in daily chronological order. Caffeine, Prozac, nicotine, white wine, Adderall, red wine, vodka, nicotine, Xanax, Valium. Occasionally Coke, she added, if it's a gift. (laughs) He was writing on his yellow tablet. And pot under duress. He did not seem shocked, then again, he'd asked about rough sex. <laughs> Let's start with the alcohol, her new therapist said. The only good part about dinner with the Louises is the drinking, Phoebe complained, as Ben whipped the penis mobile into their drive and engaged the handbrake. She hated how he set the handbrake, some piece of smug punctuation. Through the large plate glass window, she saw their hostesses, Wheezy and LL, they were called, nicknames they'd adopted when they'd hooked up, awaiting them. The matronly elder, Wheezy, wearing a condescending smile in her apron, and LL, the ingenue, with her chin lifted, hands on her hips, tongue stuck out. This is the last time I'm going in that house. You always say that, Ben said cheerfully, collecting the flowers they had brought tonight instead of the usual wine. Phoebe turned the car's rearview mirror to check her scarf. Yeah, but this time, I mean it. Thank you. Well, oh my God, thank you to the three readers tonight. I have to reiterate, if it's a gift, anything is permissible. Um, number one. Number two, back there at the tattered cover kind of book place, you see Marshall? He's waving his hands. He's got books from all three of these amazing writers who were here tonight. Thank you, three, for reading. Thank you for being here. Go get their books, and I think they'll sign. Will you guys sign? I mean, if asked and requested, they will sign. Um, and thank the rest of you for being here. We'll, we'll be around. So, Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.